So this same prophecy that Jeremiah has been giving, uh, he continues here in chapter 9. It's, uh, it's a prophecy that, um, you know, it's kind of frustrating because, you know, with other prophets, you get, um, you know, sort of the, the warnings and then maybe the recovery and then you get, you know, f- far-reaching future glimpses uh, of what the Lord is, is doing and is going to do. And uh, with Jeremiah, almost everything that he has to say is really gloom and doom because they're right at the end of uh, their rebellion and their judgment is right on the doorstep. And so, um, you know, he's what he's saying is, uh, you know, you've been acting like this and that for so long and these things are about to transpire and then your punishment is right at the door. So here he says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Oh, that my head were, were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers that I might leave my people and go from them for they are all adulterers an assembly of treacherous men um any of us that have experienced real grief um you know i think of a few things divorce and death and you know real illness uh, you can cry yourself to the point of exhaustion where there's no more you don't you don't have any more tears you don't have any more uh that could pour out of you and that's some of what jeremiah is saying is that I, he's wishing that there was more within him to pour out and not uh, for any other reason than he wants to affect the people that he's he's pleading with those that he's ministering to that they would understand his grief that they they would be moved by uh, his broken heart and compelled towards repentance so you know his wishful desire for you know more water more tears the ability to mourn deeper is you know in an effort to bring these people uh into a place where they would get right with god that statement in verse two you know i wish i had basically like a cabin in the woods someplace to be alone i wish i could just run away from all of this i wish i could get isolated uh from what's going on um you know he he is talking about the fact that the 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 hypocrisy has led him to this place these people are all supposed to be worshipers of god and um, they're all rebellious, and so he's he's wishing wishing that he'd get away from. You know, he puts it in the words of, "They're all adulterers." You know the, the, that uh, conversation of betrayal, like, like a spouse betraying their you know husband or wife, and he's saying that's how these people are. They're supposed to have this relationship with God. They're supposed to have this intimacy with God, and it's an ultimate betrayal. Uh, he describes it as 
an assembly of treacherous men. Um, I uh, thought uh, in preparing for this about what Paul is saying in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's speaking of sin in general in the church, but more specifically sexual sin. When he said in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 9, I write to you, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Uh, the world is full of that. So both. Uh, Jeremiah and Paul are voicing the idea of, yeah, of course you're going to find that type of sinfulness in the world, but amongst the assembly of people that are Christians or, you know, Old Testament believers, that should not be the case. And it causes both Jeremiah and Paul to say, you know, we should not want to be around them. You know, there should be a thing that would repel us from them. And it's important to understand it's not just the sexual aspects of adultery that he's talking about, you know, in Jeremiah or the, you know, uh, sexually immoral that Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians. It's the idea of there's a relationship with God that we're supposed to have if we're believers and if we are living a life that's betraying that relationship, then we, uh, you know, who are, are true believers in the proper relationship with the Lord are automatically going to want to pull away from those that claim to be believers and yet live contrary to it. There should automatically be a discomfort in us. Uh, there's, there's something to guard our hearts against in uh, developing a cavalier attitude with sin and allowing it amongst us. You know, the, you've heard me endlessly talk about the attitude of tolerance, the way the church just puts up with, allows, even encourages uh, compromised behavior in the church. It's, it's something that should be completely foreign to us. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, continuing at verse 3, Jeremiah says, and like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. A couple of things there. You know, the uh, book of Proverbs talking about how like a fool who wields firebrands and arrows uh, is the person that you know slings insults and injuries and then later says, oh, I was just kidding. You know, I mean, if you were literally in a house where somebody was just firing flaming arrows around all over the place, I, I mean, you would... You know, in a natural sense, if somebody was literally doing that, you would be angry. You would react. You would put a halt to it. You would, you know, yell, shout. You know, physically stop someone from doing such a thing. Uh, the person that just throws around, you know, insults and injuries, their lips 
are, are constantly setting on fire uh, their environment all around them. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can go, okay, that should be stopped. So isn't, you know, if you, if you walk into a house, you know, smoke's billowing out and you charge into that house and there's a group of people in there, a bunch of them are just sitting around happily, no worries, arrows sticking in the wall everywhere, fire started and one guy's just shooting flaming arrows everywhere, you would automatically not only attack the person that's creating the destruction, the fire, but also the people that are sitting there happily content letting it happen. You know, how stupid can the whole group be uh, within the church? You know, people going around, bad-mouthing, stabbing the bat, gossiping, creating problems with their tongue, their lips bent like an arrow, shooting around all the stuff. Our job is to stop that, to put an end to that, to confront that. You know, acting like, well, that's how they feel about it. I don't really want to get involved. It's not... This is the body of Christ. This is the church. You know, we cannot tolerate, allow these things. When we sit back and act like, well, that's their opinion. I don't want to do anything about it. We're encouraging the behavior. So therein, we become responsible. You think about what Leviticus says and even our modern laws, where if you see something like that going on and you allow for it to happen, you bear a guilt in the process. You know, these people have all become accustomed to this type of behavior. Like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Think about how the Lord deals with those in the end. They right, they claim to be his followers. They say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? I'm paraphrasing. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. It's not that I used to know. I never knew you. When someone will behave like this, when they don't, they're not valiant for the truth. How do you become valiant for the truth? The first thing is you need to know what the truth is. If, if you're not a person who's valiant for the truth, right? That, that's something that's always bothered me. I hear people telling lies, gossip, you know, spreading things around. I confront that. I go straight into it. I want to know, wait a minute. You know, that isn't right. That's not what that person said. You deal with things very directly. Valiant, right? If I just throw the word valiant out there, you know, you think of probably, you know, the hero, you know, the, the armor-clad warrior who's valiant for the truth. Are there those amongst us who are valiant, growing valiant for the truth, being trained as warriors to reckon? I'll never forget years ago, I was with a group of Christians, and I forget what came up. I think it was something about wisdom. Yes. And uh, in the discussion, somebody said something about... Um, I forget how it was phrased, but essentially that Jesus was created. And I said in the midst of that, wait a minute, why would you think that? And this is a group of Christians talking. And uh, they then jumped over to um, uh, Proverbs chapter 8. And they start describing how, 
you know, I was brought forth before the foundations of the world. I was created. And, and they're trying to, equate. I said, wait, you've been hanging out with Jehovah's Witnesses. And they're like, no, I haven't. And I said, that is a direct teaching. Proverbs 8, beginning at verse 28, they use that all of the time. You have been poisoned by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And we, no, no, we get insistent. And that's just what the scripture, we go round and round. And before it's done, he says, uh, you know, uh, well, no, it was my relative that taught me that. And I say, okay, where does your relative go to church? Oh, over at the kingdom hall. Yeah, the kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses, right? And, and he's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. You know, so he's he's just in a place where, you know, ill-informed. I'm in a place where I'm not going to let that junk be said. I'm going to attack this situation. And the people around me uh, that were fellow Christians were like, I, I had no idea. The The... Uh, understanding of the truth of God's word, the understanding of truth within our environment, that's going to cause you to stand up and defend the truth. Our culture, especially the younger generation, you guys sitting here this evening, need to study God's word intently because you come from a generation of young people who are every day more and more becoming convinced, oh, you can't know the truth. It's impossible. You know, this and that was said forever, but now that we've got the internet, we know that there's a million different opinions. Yeah, well, maybe there are a million different opinions, and that makes it more difficult to find the truth. But you study God's word, and suddenly it's not looking for a needle in a haystack. Suddenly you, you figure out that the needle is, you know, a giant cross standing alone on a hill. It's not mixed up in a haystack anywhere. You, you can know and understand the truth. We need to be valiant for the truth. Uh, the whole world is firing lies all over the place, and, and everybody's getting all frightened and scared and mixed up. we got to remember what that word was, Lori, that we were. Uh, people can't remember, know, uh, discern truth. Verse 4, everyone take heed to his neighbor and... and uh, Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother for every brother will utterly supplant, uh, you know, these terms that are lost in, in our culture, supplant. Supplant implies, right, that there is an established authority and you're trying to uproot that authority and plant something else in the place. You're supplanting that which is supposed to be in its place. So here, you know, every brother, every brother is utterly supplanting others. Every neighbor will walk with slanderers. So, so the confusion, the uh, mixed up environment, the continuous, um, uh, you know, blending of truth and lies leads to confusion. People give up. They act like, oh, you, you couldn't, I mean, you couldn't possibly know whether they literally landed on the moon or that was done in a Hollywood studio. No, you literally can know. You literally can do the investigation and figure out what's going on. You know, right now, talking to young people who are like, I don't, maybe aliens really are from another planet. No, you can do the investigation and discover 
that you know what is described as aliens is in fact demonic hosts if they're really even there the rest of the time it's usually just potheads sitting around convincing one another that they've had some fantastic experience and i don't know if you had the you know stupid experience growing up as a kid of sitting around and telling one another ghost stories until everybody in the room is petrified and now everybody's seeing ghosts everywhere right you know uh you know what was area 51 very real you know, it's been run by the CIA uh, since its inception. We've been testing aircraft there uh, since uh, the mid-40s. Uh, you know, we were designing circular aircraft for universal direction flight, up, down, back, forth, uh, you know, in, in the, as early as 1959. Circular aircraft, discs. The engines were being designed in Canada. And built. We've crashed at least three of them. One of them was in Roswell, New Mexico. It's top secret. We don't want people to know about this. This isn't like me discovered. This is all declassified information. Fox News, like six years ago, did a three-page article on the thing. Yeah, we crashed. We crashed a circular disc aircraft in Australia. Had to go through great efforts with the help of the Australian government to get it back into our country. Uh, the SR-71 Blackbird, you're familiar with that, John. Probably everybody else has seen that giant aircraft. Three times the speed of sound, flying at 72,000 feet. That, in 1959, flying three times the sound barrier, was the second phase. The first phase had been built almost a decade earlier than that. It was known as Oxcart flew at similar heights. It was all about spying on the Russians and knowing where their missiles were in order to protect us. You know, when we crash them in the deserts near Area 51 and, you know, rabbit hunters find our pilot out there, uh, he has to make up some crazy story. And if they make up a crazy story about, we saw an alien aircraft, they encourage him to do that. The United States government encourages them to do that. So now... Everybody's confused about what's truth and what's not truth. You know, watch the X-Files all through the 90s and then nobody knows. You know, the truth is out there. Yeah, no, really, the truth is out there. And you can find it and you can know. You know, you, you start talking about, you know, flying across the universe to get here. Some alien race of beings flew across the universe I mean, start doing some calculations, right? You got to travel at the speed of light for a hundred thousand years. Wow! <laughs> so when they arrive here, I mean, they're really old. You know what I'm saying? If they've flown this great distance, you know, flying at the speed of, of light. I, I think I said sound. Flying at the speed of light for however many thousands of years. That's that's crazy to even consider. Now consider. Uh, you know, the faster you go in your automobile, the more fuel you burn, right? If you want to go 100 miles, you go at 55 miles an hour. That's the way your car is designed. It burns up so much fuel. You go 100 miles an hour, you're going to burn more fuel going the same 100 miles. You're burning more fuel to go faster. You travel at the speed of light, the incomprehensible amount of energy it's going to take for you to start at one point and go to another point is not even calculable, 
imagine the size of the fuel cell you're going to have to have to travel this great distance. Now consider this. You've tried to follow Google Maps, right? Let alone your GPS. Space is not empty. You got to travel through space and miss everything while you're traveling at the speed of light. If you're traveling at the speed of light, getting from your planet to our planet, and there's a planet in the way you didn't calculate, end of the trip. You know what I'm saying? There's so many things about the concept that are absolutely stupid. Now rewind and understand that we've got recorded history of how there have been aliens arriving here for centuries. What's most interesting to me is uh, in the 1300s when they were arriving here, they were arriving here in sailing ships. The people who had encounters with them in the night sky, giant sailing ships, literally, you know, like canvas sails furled out. So they were literally sailing across the universe from one planet to another. And then they would tell them similar things about how they were these highly evolved creatures. And, you know, they were once like us, humanoid in nature, and they've evolved to be these great cosmic voyagers and someday will you know evolve to be like they are to where we could use our own sailing ships okay 1300s what's the most advanced form of travel in the world sailing ships what does everybody want to be what does every little kid want to be he wants to be a sea captain right now what's the most advanced form of travel in the entire known world spaceships now what does everybody want to be, including our presidents and world leaders? Astronauts. So the message is the same. It's just transported into a different time. So the core of the message that these creatures bring is evolution. We were once like you, and we've advanced to this state, and you can evolve and become like us. Okay, so evolution in the church and what we understand in our culture is the lie that dismisses the existence of God. Why would that be the key message of these creatures come here from other universes and other galaxies and other locations? I submit to you again, this is a demonic message. You can know the truth. You don't have to sit around and wonder. You know, I, I've said endlessly that the way counterfeit money is found more frequently than any other way, it isn't with those, you know, you go in and you give them your bill and they take out that magic marker and they confirm, yep, your 20 is real. And they, you know, give you your change. That's not how it's most frequently found. It's found by bank tellers because they handle real money all day. And as they're counting money, they feel something that's incorrect. So under closer examination with the marker or the light or whatever examination, they discover this is in fact a fake bill. It isn't because they go to class and they study endlessly all the different fake money that's out there. They study the genuine and they don't do it by going to class and looking at it and all the different things. They do it by handling it. And then in counting it, they feel something that's out of place. 
So then under closer examination, they find what's false. I hear somebody say something about Jesus being created. He's not even saying that Jesus is not God. He's just saying Jesus is being created. I understand. That sounds like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Something about that doesn't feel right. Before we're done, we discover he's been learning from the Jehovah's Witnesses. He didn't even realize it. The, the falsehood, their, their tongue is bent on spreading lies. There's falsehood everywhere amongst one another. Become a warrior for the truth by handling the truth every day, all day. Start your day in the word of God. End your day in the word of God. And then when the lie, the falsehood passes through your hearing, you're going to go, something's wrong there. Don't know what it is, but something's wrong. Under closer examination, you'll be able to discover it. They supplant. Every neighbor will walk with slander. Everyone will deceive his neighbor. I will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity, outright sin, not, not even the innocence of, oh, I didn't know that was wrong. They weary themselves in doing things that they know are wrong. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Think about what Romans says about how they refused to retain the knowledge of God. Meaning the knowledge of God was in their heart and mind, but they didn't want to hang on to it. They didn't want to keep it. This is the condition of the human race. When it says, you know, they have taught their tongue to speak lies. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, you might think like, oh, yeah, <clears throat> so you got to beat your kid, and that way they'll learn. You know, the rod of correction. That's not what's being said at all. A shepherd used the rod to correct the sheep to get them out of places that they were going to end up in trouble. When a sheep got to the place where it was almost time to harvest their wool, to shear off their wool and make the money from it, getting into mud or water could easily kill them. That much wool soaking up all that mud and water could pull them into the mud, the water, and drown them. So the shepherd, you know, they like to drink. The, the, the sheep do get into the water. The shepherd can recognize you can't walk through that marshy area to get to the water. We've got to go further down where you're going to be able to walk down over the sandy shore and get your muzzle into the water and get what you want. So the sheep want the water. They see it, but they're dumb. So they try to walk through places that they shouldn't go. So the rod, the staff that he carries, he is going to reach out and he's going to guide them away from the thing that's going to destroy them. You know, the rod of correction steers them out of it. Foolishness bound up in the heart of a child. You shouldn't think of that as, oh, those silly kids. That's not the foolishness we're talking about, right? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's the gentle, loving guide of the shepherd that reaches out and says, that's a bad direction to go. Got to steer you up out of there. 
Let's get down a little further where you can get straight into the things that you need to. I need to steer you away from those friends. I need to steer you away from that music. I need to steer you away from those things, which right now you don't even recognize is going to burden your soul, pull you down, drown you in something terrible. That, that means the sheep is going to have to trust that the shepherd knows something that the sheep doesn't know. And that there's a reason the shepherd's been put in authority in order to protect, guide, and provide for the sheep. The, the rod of correction is a good thing to recognize. I don't know these things. I need help. I need to be directed to that which is good. And you guys put your bookmark, if you haven't already, in Jeremiah 9 and go hard to the left to find Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. <clears throat> if you get there quickly, turn to verse 18. The Lord is encouraging the nation of Israel at this point in how to raise their children and how to guide their families and how to train up the people of the nation in order that they would follow the Lord properly. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18, Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. This is why they ended up... Uh, putting the phylacteries on their foreheads. They had that leather pouch and they would write out passages of scripture and put them into the pouch and tie that on their forehead. Between the frontlets of their eyes, they would put the phylactery on their forehead. And people look at that and like, wow, you look weird. Yeah, but the word of God is between, literally between my eyes. As I hold my hands up in the air and I have the word of God on my hands. Because I want to remember, and I want people to ask me, what's up with that? Why do you have that tattoo on your forearm? Well, uh, this one says that he he you know heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will by no means pass away. That, that'll invoke some conversations in the grocery line. Mm -hmm. What's up with that tattoo? The earth is going to be destroyed, but God's word will not be destroyed. What's up with that tattoo? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, his word implanted. I'm not encouraging you all to go out and get tattoos at all. There's a purpose and a reason behind our compulsions. The seriousness of relating to those around us what the word of God says, teaches, and does in our lives. You know, the Lord is saying, therefore, you shall lay up these words of mine in your hearts and in your soul, bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall, uh, they shall be a, as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children right there. Speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, when you're in the truck, when you're in the car, when you're at the beach, when you're on the way to the moon, everywhere you go. You see something in public that causes the word of God to spring to mind? Say something to your children. Instruct, talk, teach. Constantly be delivering the word of God into these young people's lives. This is the rod of correction that steers us away from the foolishness that is in our heart naturally. 
The foolishness that says there is no God, the word of God is of no consequence. I don't have to follow these things. Here's God giving the command. You need to constantly be delivering this. And hey, make sure, especially parents, that you're having conversations. Don't assume because they're watching you go to church, watching you read your Bible, watching you live this out. Open your mouth. Have the conversation. Speak to them. They'll get sick of it, right? You guys will roll your eyes and think, oh, here we go. Another Bible lesson. It's going to serve you for the rest of your life. This is going to be the thing that keeps us from what Jeremiah is describing here, where everybody has trained themselves how to be a liar, how to be a deceiver, how to be untrustworthy, how to be a betrayer. That's not what I want to see in the young people's lives that are in my life. I want to constantly be instructing them and teaching them and guiding them that they would be able to live this way. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I've seen that in your homes, all of your homes. It's next to the door. It's inside. It's outside. It's in your flower garden. you got little plaques. you got you know, all kinds of things that are indicating the word of God, indicating God's relationship in your life. This is what we need to do. It's on our cars. It's on our bumpers. It's on our T-shirts. Christ needs to be ever-present in our lives, everywhere we go, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. Our days are being shortened in this country. They are. We are being invaded by a godless culture. It's coming from other countries. It's invading our country. It's growing up and developing inside our own country. There's a godlessness afoot. There is a great wickedness that is growing and swelling in our midst. God said to the nation of Israel, this is my land. It's, it's my land. It's full of pagans. I'm going to use you to drive the pagans out. And then you guys can stay there and live there. It's my blessed land. And I'm going to give it to you. If you don't continue to worship me, I'll drive you out, just like I'm going to use you to drive out the pagans that are there presently. And that's what's presently going on in Jeremiah chapter 9. The pagan nations are invading and driving them out. Why? Because it's God's land. Now, people often talk about how it's you know the Israelites' land. It's really not. It's God's land. And he's allowed them to be there. As long as they will worship. This is not our land. This is God's land. And God has allowed us to come here and be here as a people. And as long as we continue to worship him, he'll bless us and allow us to stay here. And if not, he'll bring us to ruin the same way he brought these people to ruin. Back to Jeremiah chapter 9. Look at verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and try them. You might want to underline the word refine right there. For how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. So he's back to that same uh, message and theme of how this tongue is like a bent bow shooting arrows around and lies and deceit are you know, what's most common and what he's describing. One speaks 
peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth. But in his heart, he lies in wait. You, know, you, you may have had the unfortunate experience of having somebody look you right in the face, and there's something not right, but what they're saying convinces you that, well, they, they say they're my friend. They say they're on my side. They say they mean me well. And in time you learn that's not what they were about at all. They were deceitful. What was in their mouth seemed like it was right. They convinced you. You went along with it. And then later you learned that what was in their heart was lie, was deception all along the way. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? A people that would literally use their relationship with the Lord as a method of deception. Think about that. They speak peaceably you know, in regard to God, in regard to, we're brothers. You're an Israelite, I'm an Israelite. You're a Christian, I'm a Christian. I love you, you love me. You know, all of whatever Barney song we want to fit in there. And in the end, sharp pain in your heart. What is going on here as you pull the dagger out? that they've thrust between your ribs. The deception, the lie. Oh, that can't be my behavior. That can't be your behavior. Honesty, truth. You upset with somebody? Oh, don't keep that in your heart as you smile at them and say warm things. Say exactly what you mean. No hate, no anger, no bitterness. If there's a problem, right, Jesus says your brother sins against you, you go to him directly, you speak. He doesn't listen, you get somebody else. You take them. Still won't listen, bring the leadership of the church and address the issue. They still won't listen, put them out. Like a heathen or a tax collector. You need to deal with things very directly. You need to be valiant for the truth. Sweeping things under the carpet, right, that never works. That never works, right? We got this stupid saying in our culture, time heals all wounds. What a lie, right? I've got, I've got like the best medical advice in the world. Ask my whole family. I give this medical advice out all the time. I say it will either get better or it will get worse, right? I mean, how true is that? You don't have to go to school to learn that. Unfortunately with me, I'm the guy who always has it in his mind. Like, it'll get better when it's getting worse, you know, and, well, finally they're taking me to the hospital in the ambulance, you know, because my appendix is burst. Literally, you know, I, my whole family's had a stomach flu. They've all gotten sick, you know, and gotten better. Years ago, I'm thinking, well, I must have the same stomach flu. And now, weeks later, I'm in my office with my face right on my desk and the sweat's pouring off me. And I'm thinking, none of them went through this. Like, something's desperately wrong. I, I get in my truck and drive myself to the hospital and arrive there for them to tell me, yeah, your appendix has burst. And they rush me in to save my life. Leaving something unattended doesn't make it go away. And, and we have, as foolish as that is, right? You're here looking at me kind of shaking your head thinking, this stupid pastor, like, why? what is it? Why? Just, you know, be smarter than that, would you? And yet, 
You know, maybe I do things like that and go through that so that you'll understand my frustration as a pastor as the congregation acts that way about spiritual things. Oh, I'm just going to let it, you know, fester. I'm not going to do I don't want to confront them. I don't want to say anything. It'll go away. No, it's not going to. It's going to get much worse. The situation is going to grow. It's going to infect other people, affect other people. Needs to be addressed. With what? Truth. Truth. Need to be valiant for the truth. Go and deal with things. There's nothing noble about sweeping it under the carpet. You know, you got to deal with things directly. He speaks peaceably, but in his heart, he lies in wait. Someone wants to spring and do his damage. Shall I not punish them? That refining, I asked you to underline. I will refine them. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Now, it is said by people that work in gold and silver that they put the crucible out and the precious metal in it, intense fire underneath it, and they melt let's say, the gold. They're trying to make it more pure. Take a whole bunch of, I don't know what, jewelry and, let's say, coins, and you're trying to get the most amount of gold out of melting all of these things down. There's zinc and all kinds of other impure metals mixed in there, right? When you get a a ring that's 18-karat gold, there's a whole bunch of steel mixed in with that gold to make it hard. 24-karat gold ring, you could take a thick ring of 24-karat gold and with your two knuckles after it's been on your warm hand and just go smush. 24-karat gold's really soft. You know, if it's been beaten into a a nice thin ring, you put that on your finger. 18-karat, 10-karat, you know, really hard. It's got all kinds of... Now put it in the crucible. Crank the fire up. Melt that down whole bunch of black gunk is going to burn to the top and they'll usually take another metal rod and put it in there and turn it and pull all of that dross they call it off when they're trying to get pure gold they'll just keep the fire on that as that stuff continues to burn and burn and burn to the top and they skim it off and skim it off and the way Apparently, the refiner knows when he has reached the most pure sense of gold, not just the fact that things don't come to the top anymore, but when he can look over the top of that and see a perfect reflection of his face. Literally like looking in a highly polished mirror. There's no dull haze to it anymore. It's very pure gold. Now think about that. We just read the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. So he puts us in the crucible. He cranks the fire and he just continues to burn the sin and the junk out of us, right? And it's blurry and it's hazy and he continues to pull stuff off and pull stuff off and pull stuff off until he can look in the refining pot and see what? Himself. When I've been burned away, what did John the Baptist say? 
I must decrease. He must increase. Less of me, more of him. That's what needs to occur. The Lord saying, I'm going to refine these people. Why? Because they claim to be mine. And what are they doing? They're injuring one another, hurting one another, saying kind things with their mouth while they secretly are waiting to spring and hurt and harm and take. God's going to crank the fire up. He's going to test. He's going to prove out. Continuing, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 10. It will take up a weeping and a wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation, mourning, because they are burned up so that no one can pass through, nor can men hear the voice of cattle. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They're gone. You know, a big part of what brings the wildlife around, the cattle, the birds, the things of this nature, is the existence of the human beings in, the, in this region. The crops, they're growing grain, they're planting vineyards, there is ready food supply for all of the animal kingdom also. Now that they're being burned and destroyed and taken away as slaves and off into captivity, desolate, ruined, lifeless, apocalyptic. It's like end of the world. There's no life here. You know, you hear the distant call of a crow. It's literally because it's feasting upon some dead person or animal. This is not a place of beauty, not a place of songbirds, not a place of enjoyment. They've rejected God and it has become ruined in the process. It's a horrible thing that ends up becoming any location, any city, any culture, any country that rejects God. This terrible outcome. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals, you know, wild dogs. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. You know, again, that apocalyptic type of location. You know, And the Lord ends up doing it. It's an ominous warning that he's giving right here. You think about that that description, the ruinous heap, the den of jackals. Uh, you know, when you've got the people coming back, Ezra and then later Nehemiah, as they're coming back into the land, Zerubbabel is arriving and they're beginning the work and they go around and they begin to survey. You know, some of them were alive and they were taken away into captivity and now they're coming back. Now, again, I've said this many times. Not only is the place ruined, destroyed, and desolate, but 70 years of overgrowth has taken over. The trees have grown up through the ruins. There's just an absolute sense of destruction in this place before it's all done. Zerubbabel is so overwhelmed with it. You know, even the rock, they're thinking, we'll just rebuild the walls. And they arrive back to where you can take the rocks and crumble them in your hands. Because they were burned with fire. They become fragile and ruined. It's just a ruinous heap. There are mountains, literally just mountains around of the remains of the city. Where homes that were left for 70 years have just decayed into piles. No one's done any maintenance on any of this. And that's where he goes to the Lord and he's just you know, crying his eyes out about how are we ever going to rebuild here? 
And the Lord says, not by strength, not by might, but by my spirit. Says that's how you're going to rebuild is by a reliance upon me. You're going to be able to say to this mountain, and, and the mountain he's referring to is the mountain of rubble that is the city of Jerusalem. He says, you're going to be able to say to this mountain, move, and it will move. The sheer determination of human will fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit, not ultimate plans, not great human strength. He comes there, and all of that human will just wilts at the sight of what's ahead of him. And God says, see, now we're in a good place. Your heart can return to me, and you can build what you're supposed to here, which is what these people should have done. And they didn't, and that's why it becomes a ruinous heap and a place of the jackals. Because no one turned their heart to the Lord. Verse 12, who is the wise man? Who may understand this and who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? You know, you want to know who's wise? It's the person that's listening to the Lord. That's what he's saying. Who's the wise man? The one that hears my voice. What's tragic is at this point, as far as we can tell, that's literally a singular man. How about that, you guys? Calculate that for a few minutes. There's a massive nation here. And as far as we can tell, there is literally one guy listening to the Lord. He's currently writing these passages for us, Jeremiah. That's a really lonely place to exist, where you're the one guy who's hearing from the Lord. That's not going to change the outcome because everyone else is rejecting him, ruin burning, wilderness, impassable land is what's going to be left. Verse 13, the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law. Today we would say his word, which I set before them, and they have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it. But they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals, the, the false gods that have led them. You know, recently Lori and I have been studying through a number of things that show us how much our culture is under the influence of the Eastern world. You know, the philosophy and the psychology and you know all of the mysticism that everybody's so fascinated with in our culture. Like, how about you, you know, get your eyes off from that for just a minute and lift your eyes up and actually look at those cultures and see what's going on. We're supposed to admire a world that has a caste system. I had a conversation with a guy last night who's saying, I have met Hindus who are the most loving people you would ever meet. I said, where'd you meet them? Oh, right here. I said, in the United States? Yeah. I said, you ever been to a Hindu culture? Actually gone to the country, seen what goes on there? You know, where a little boy in a movie theater puts his foot up on the seat in front of him while he's watching the movie, and because it's dark, he doesn't calculate well, and his foot slips off. It touches the shoulder of the man in front of him, and that man is so offended 
because the little boy is a Dalit, an untouchable from the lowest caste of his culture, that that man gets his name that night in the movie theater and the next day comes to his house and in front of his family hacks that little boy to pieces with a sword. Because it's a caste society. There are three layers to the society. The educated elite, the elevated religious, and the low caste Dalits. And the Dalit touched a religious man, and the religious man came to his house the next day, and literally when he left, there were just chunks of child all over the ground that his family had to literally just fall down and weep over. That's, that's what Hinduism produces. We're supposed to be impressed with that? Oh, look how dedicated they are. Look how religious they are. Look at, look at what? Jesus Christ taught us how we should be, right? God of all creation, only true living God in all of existence, became a man and sacrificed himself for us. That, that's the example we should be living by. I got no reason to look at philosophy and religions and mysticism and any of that. You know, the reason that this place is being destroyed, because they've forsaken my word, my law, and they've gone after the other gods. They've gone after, they, oh, you know, oh, the, oh, the, you know, the Buddhists, they're so, you know, intelligent, so wise, so elevated. No, they're not. You know, the ultimate goal of the Buddhist is to empty their mind of all things. You know, the ultimate goal of Christianity is, is to fill your mind and heart with as much of God's wisdom as you can, that you'd be more useful to your fellow human beings. It's a stupid thing that we do to reject what it is that God has provided for us. They go after their own heart's desires, after the bales which their fathers taught them. There's really the crux of the issue. Their fathers taught them to do this. That's why generation after generation after generation gets worse and worse and worse. How tragic is it that you can sit down, you know, and if you think it's a, a long ways away from you, come do jail ministry with me sometime and sit down with people who've lived their entire lives in this culture and they've never, never opened a Bible. They don't actually know anything about Jesus at all. 40, 50, 60 years old. Sat down with a man last winter, late in November, at Hancock County Jail, and he's 70 years old, and he had never opened a Bible before in his life. When I say, what do you think of the Bible? He starts talking all this nonsense all over the place. And, you know, it's got names and locations from the Bible in it, but it's literally just what has sort of stuck to him as he's passed through. I say he's 70. He was 68 at that time. 68 years old. He's passed through life and stuff's kind of stuck to him, but he's never looked at it to know the truth of what's in there. You know, by the end of us spending a couple months every Wednesday looking into the word of God, you know, he's keeping a Bible with him all the time by that point. He, he's going to his cell. He's reading all week. He's underlining stuff, writing down questions. He's coming back. He's asking me questions. We're looking at things. He's starting to, at 68 years old, he's starting to go. Why? 
Because generation after generation after generation in his family has had nothing to do with the word of God. They've gone after the desires of their own heart, uh, pursued after the false teachings, uh, you know, done the things that their fathers taught them. Verse 15, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood. That's literally bitterness. That's what you're going to eat. <laughs> Can I please have a heaping bowl of bitterness? This is a bizarre thought. And give them water of gall. Even what their drink will be bitter. Yeah, that's going to be their drink. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. I will send a sword, you know, war and violence after them until I have consumed them. Uh, speaking of Israel, in light of this, that has the immediate fulfillment of when they were taken away into Assyria and then later Judah was taken away into Babylon, which, you know, Assyria conquered by Babylon. Babylon becomes the world power and, you know, they meet their brothers there in captivity, essentially. But it also has the idea that they were going to be scattered around the world amongst the Gentiles, like we see today. That's not what happened here when Assyria and Babylon took them. That, that has a greater fulfillment to where, you know, in the 1900s and now in the millennium, you're seeing that fulfilled as the Lord had said. So it has that both that near and that far fulfillment. Assyria and Babylon, the captivity amongst the Gentiles as described, but they're going to be scattered amongst the Gentiles they've never even heard of, you know, like Americans that didn't even exist at this time that no one in the world had heard of, right? Because Europe hadn't come to the new world and created this group of Gentiles. So it's interesting that the Lord, you know, knew things far beyond anything that any human being could grasp. Then it says in verse 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider the call for mourning, consider and call for the mourning women. This is the, uh, the professional mourners. Um, we think of that as very strange. You know, you're, you're reading through Matthew and the little girl has died in chapter 9 and Jesus arrives and he says to the professional mourners that they're, you know, why are you mourning? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. They mock him. He throws them out. Uh, professional mourners. Why would they do that? Well, you know, our culture has, you know, certain things that when somebody passes away, it's sort of expected. You know, it doesn't have to be done, but it's sort of expected. Somebody passes away, you're going to make some kind of, you know, arrangements. Um, could be a full casket burial in a crypt, you know, some stone monument that they're going to reside in, in a metal casket for who knows how long. Could be a casket that you bury in a concrete vault in the ground. It could be cremation. Um, probably going to have, you know, some uh, date you know, a few weeks away, usually, where you contact all the relatives. They fly in from wherever, drive over. Everybody gets together, shares memory, laughs, cries, mourns, says goodbye. You know, go to the graveside, do the burial. You know, maybe, you know, it's the cremation. It's the simple scattering of the ashes. Or, or you, get a, you get some kind of ritual that you go through. Right? It, it, it isn't that when somebody passes away, everybody goes, well, that's it. And they just walk out of the hospital, just leave the body there, and it's over. I mean, we don't do that. 
we've got our rituals. In this culture, when somebody passed away, you went and you hired mourners. And they came to your home. And they wept and they wailed and they played mournful music. And that, that wasn't just to create some kind of weird scene. That was to let people in the know, hey, don't let the kids outside to play. We've had a death in our family over here. Can't you see people are screaming and yelling and crying and playing mournful funeral music? It's, it's time for you to mourn with us. Bring the kids in the house and be quiet for the day. You know, get them to think about the fact that their friend that they used to play with is not going to be playing with them ever again. This is Jeremiah saying, hey, you guys are all celebrating Assyria came and took the tribes in the north and carried them away into captivity and you guys survived and you've now gone back to your partying and having weddings and celebrating and going to jobs and enjoying yourself. You know what you should do? Go hire the mourning women. Get the band down here to play the funeral music. That's what you should be doing. This culture here needs to hear that, needs to be told, you've got the wrong approach. you got the wrong attitude. It's not time for you to act like, oh, thank God we weren't taken away captive. Those ten tribes in the north must have been much more wicked than us because, hey, we survived, so clearly the Lord favors us. No, no, you were less sinful at the time, and God was giving you time to repent, and you didn't. Uh, so you're doing the exact same things that caused the ten, you know, nine and a half tribes in the north to be taken away. It's coming for you too. Why don't you stop beating around the bush and just go hire the mourning women right now? Get them down here screaming. Get them down here wailing and cry. Their shrill tones that would just, you know, cause you to have the heebie-jeebies and really be scared. That's, that's actually God being gracious. There's a mockery in it, but it's God being gracious, saying it's not time to be having weddings and celebrating. The thing that should be going on in your culture is mourning. Consider and call the mourning women, that they may come and send the skillful wailing women, not just the ones that are shrill, the ones that when you see them, you're convinced that they're actually heartbroken and crying. You know what I'm saying? You know, not just the ones who would like make horrible sounds, but then you look at them close and there are no tears. Like actually hire the women that can, you know, can really uh, like on cue start crying. That it would be shocking, right? Isn't, isn't that the way tears affect you, right? I mean, you're just bebopping through your day, think it's normal, and you turn around and somebody is bead red and they can't even make a sound and the tears are just running down their face and you can see the horror of where they're at you're not going to just ignore that and act like hey let me finish telling you my joke right it's it's going to lurch you emotionally and that's what god is saying you you need the shock of recognizing where you're really at i think our culture needs that the full-blown effect of Judgment's coming. Think about how far emotionally our culture has drifted since 9-11. People were genuinely scared. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, I don't know if you guys are aware of it, right? We had, we had 
another mass shooting yesterday, right? No, not aware, right? Think about that. You're sitting here and some of you aren't even aware of that. You know, Milwaukee, the Coors, Molson plant, 17-year-old kid walked in, killed eight people. Just, just angry about a work dispute, he killed eight people. And now everybody's screaming, oh, we need gun control, we need reform. We definitely need reform. Reform that would cause our culture to be shocked by that. Shocked with what in the world is going on with our culture. It isn't guns. You know what? I mean, whatever the politicians want to do, I, I mean, I freak Christians out with this, but go ahead and do whatever you're going to do with guns. I honestly don't care. There's a problem with the human heart that needs to be addressed. That's the thing we all need to be shocked about. We do not need to be shocked about guns. We need to be shocked about what in the world is wrong with the human heart that we've gotten to this place. Because you can take all the guns away and people still kill one another, right? The same day as Sandy Hook, when all of those precious children were killed, the exact same day as Sandy Hook, a man went into a school in China with a kitchen knife and killed more children in China than happened at Sandy Hook. Murder is in the human heart. To a degree, it was never before there in history. Why? Because we've rejected God and embraced the false gods and each generation is doing what their parents taught them, right? You know, you ever hear that thing <clears throat> like every so many years, the human body regenerates itself. All of your cells are reproduced, right? <clears throat> it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Like, oh man, your body's so smart. DNA is cool. The problem is the copy's being made from your broken down copy. That's why you get old and die. Because <clears throat> the copy's being made from a copy that was made from a copy, which was made from a copy, which was made from a copy. You know, any of us that grew up with cassette tapes know what that's all about. Or photocopying. Photocopy the photocopy that was photocopied from a photocopy. Right? You think your your dad was messed up? What about his dad? What about your kids? Right? Successive generations. Down, down, down. Deterioration. Doing what your fathers have done. Call for the mourning women, the skillful mourners. Let them make haste and take up the wailing that our eyes may run with tears, that our eyelids gush with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. Now we are plundered. We are greatly ashamed because we have forsaken the land. Because we have cast out, uh, we have been cast out of our dwellings. Been cast out because they cast out God. They rejected his word. Verse 20. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing. And everyone, his neighbor, a lamentation, a, a, a mournful statement or song. For death has come through your windows, has entered 
our palaces to kill off the children no longer be outside and the young men no longer in the streets right hide no freedom no enjoyment no playing fear isolation confusion right our mother would kick us out of the house in the morning you can go play you can be all in this neighborhood you'll be back here for lunch you can go out again play with your friends could not go into anybody else's house unless their parents were home your mom finds out you were in somebody else's house and their parents were home you're probably never going to be let out of your yard again you know ground grounded grounded was a serious thing when i was growing up the rule was you had to be back in the yard before the street lights came on i would never allow my grandchildren to do any such thing today my grandkids are not wandering the neighborhood, playing in the woods alone, going to friends' houses, going into somebody's house, even if their parents are home. In fact, if their parents are home, you better come running back to... Death has come through your windows. Everything is frightful. Your children are being killed all around you this is our culture you guys think about how close to judgment we are when you can do the direct overlay right if you're preaching this sermon when i was a child it's not the same thing things have deteriorated that bad that this much more fits today very few decades have passed and now we're here speak thus says the lord even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse trash on the open field like cuttings after the harvest and no one shall gather them you know and you know we we don't see sheaves right but still you know you can drive by certain fields and you know in, in a couple times this summer you'll see all the bales of hay out there right that's what he's saying is death is going to be so common that you're going to be driving by a field and it's going to be bodies out there just left in the open field that's a frightening thought we haven't gotten to that point, but given the fact that we're at the place where the kids can't play in the streets anymore, we must not be far from this next step where death is going to surround us to that point where you're going to drive through the farm country and you're just going to see dead bodies, you know, burning wreckage of wartime all around you. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might nor let the, the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That's going to be what people glory in. Few and far between, right? People glory in riches, wealth, might. Oh, this is my daily workout. This is what I'm studying. This is why I'm wise. This is why I'm strong. This is why I'm awesome. It better be that if we glory, we're glorying in the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding, and the relationship that we have with God. That better be our glory. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Last two verses. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Doesn't matter. If you're a Jew, that's not going to buy you anything. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian. Oh, wait, what? Right? I'll say again. 
Many people are Christians, but they're not born again. They go to they go to Christian churches. They don't they don't worship Buddha. They're not Hindus. They're not Muslim. You ask them, they'll tell you, I'm a Christian. God's going to kill the pagans with the Christians because people aren't born again. They haven't surrendered their heart. Their heart is not circumcised. That's what the Lord is saying here. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Very straightforward. Romans chapter 2 to close, verses 25 through 29. Paul says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Have to have the broken and contrite heart in order to be right with the Lord. So, we'll pick up at chapter 10 next week. We'll stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for the clarity of Jeremiah. I pray that we would each take his confrontation to heart, that we would surrender ourselves to you and your great love. While this is a very mournful and dark message that he has delivered, there is that out in the end that those who surrender themselves to you will be saved. Help us to be men and women of submission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.